following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Last week we left off at verse 9 of, of the third chapter, where Paul refers to us as God's field. We are the people of God, co-workers in his service, playing on the same team and are on the same field. He ended verse 9 not only talking about God's field, but he kind of entered into and introduced a new analogy that he's going to be using. And he also then says God's field and God's building. So here in verse 10, Paul shifts analogies from agriculture to architecture. Because if the Corinthians could grasp the importance of being God's field, then hopefully they will better understand all that's involved being his building, his house, his temple. And so Paul begins where all buildings begin with the foundation. So read with me verses 10 and 11. It says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. As the original planter of the church in Corinth, Paul could regard, rightfully so, himself as the wise builder. And yet, just as Paul's general calling as an apostle was a gift of grace, he acknowledges that. So the specific work that he began at Corinth was also by the grace of God that was given him. In other words, neither the wisdom nor the skill, neither the plan nor the resources for building the foundation of the church had come from Paul. Paul is letting us know Just as Kenny was praying in our prayer right now, following worship, everything is about God and everything came from God. It was all about Jesus in that sense. The foundation upon which Paul built was not upon principles. It was upon a person. (laughs) And that person, of course, was Jesus Christ. Remember these words, upon this rock, I will build my church. You remember who said that? Jesus said that, right? The rock. (laughs) What rock? (laughs) The rock of Peter's confession. That Jesus is the Christ. We find that in Matthew chapter 16. So when when Peter said, you are the Christ, this kind of just burned out of his mouth, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Basically, he was in effect saying, you're the living hope, the promise, you're the one. Peter was declaring when he made that statement, declaring, proclaiming the very foundation upon which Jesus would build his church upon Christ. Paul took no pride in his initiating role and acknowledged that he only served to lay a foundation through the grace, once again, that God had given him. 
And so to extend a note of humility to Apollos and others who are also were involved in the Corinthian church, Paul added another thought here. He, anyone building on the foundation, as we read in verse 10 and 11, anyone building on another foundation would be wrong. Anyone building on the one that he has laid was to be careful how they built. This warning also served as a rebuke to the Corinthian leaders who built upon Paul's foundation when he and Apollos were absent by allowing the dissension and the division that had come up to exist. They did not obviously build wisely because no builder of the church should ever, ever try to lay any foundation other than Jesus Christ. Anyone serving in church ministry who substitute human wisdom, ingenuity, and intellect apart from the true gospel of Jesus Christ has set aside the only acceptable foundation for the church, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so Paul, then he talks about the foundation. It's got to be the right foundation. He moves on, and he's going to talk about now the right materials. Look at verse 12 and 13 with me. It says, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work so as I said after emphasizing the importance of the foundation of Jesus Christ Paul warns the Corinthians about the need for care in their part of the construction work focusing on the quality of their work in other words the materials being used matter greatly he urges his readers to use only the best materials, long-lasting and invaluable materials like gold, silver, and costly stones. They are then to avoid the flimsy and the flammable cheaper materials like wood, hay, and straw. So what was Paul wanting to signify by his choice of materials here? Well, first, let it be said and let make sure we understand that Paul is not talking about people. Because elsewhere, we learn that people are not costly stones. The people of God, they're referred to as what? Living stones. So we're not talking about people here that make up God's temple building. That's not what he's saying. I believe Paul is referring to the divine truth of the Word of God. Jesus Christ is found in each section of this chapter. The Word is symbolized in a way that fits the image of the church that Paul used. So the Word is food for the church family, seed for the field. We're the field, right? God's people and materials, the word, for the building, the house of God, the temple. 
all of that referring back to the Word of God in each of those illustrations and images that Paul uses. When you remember that Paul has been writing about the contrast between godly wisdom and worldly human wisdom, in these first three chapters, you could easily then see the connection. The Corinthians were trying to build their church, underlined in my notes, <laughs> by the wisdom of this world, wood, hay, straw, when they should have been depending on the wisdom of God that's found in the word of God, gold, silver, costly stones to build his church. I got that underlined too. Okay? <laughs> they got caught up in building their own church using human wisdom when they should have been caught up in using the word of God, God's wisdom, his church. Every day we live, we are to build upon the foundational truth that Jesus Christ is the one. That he is our Lord. Now the question is, do we build with gold, silver, and costly stones? Or do we build with wood, hay, and straw? What is the telling difference? Well, Paul says gold, silver, and costly stones don't burn. The other do. Verse 14. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will, will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Paul has warned that the quality of each builder's work will be tested by fire. In Paul's writings, the day most often refers to the coming day of judgment when Christ himself will take his seat and judge believers for their works, for what they did for him, with him, that sort of thing. Now, this is not on the basis for salvation. We understand that, correct? But as a basis for what Paul says here, rewards. Not salvation, rewards. As stated here, also Paul mentions it in Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10. You see, like the works of the Corinthians... Our own works one day will be tested, will be judged, not to decide who has merited salvation, not in this sense, but to determine the rewards a believer receives. Now, because John speaks of Jesus' eyes as a flame of fire in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, could it be that when we see him, on that day that Paul is referring to, that when we see him, the look that he will give us will warm us, and as it does, melt away all of the junk in our lives, all of that which drew attention to ourselves, all of that that was done to impress others, leaving only the gold, the silver, and costly stones. 
that which we did only for him will remain. Now, I realize that at about this point, some believers begin to have thoughts and begin thinking when they hear about rewards. I don't care about rewards. You know, it's, it's not about what's in it for me. It's, it's just all about Jesus. <laughs> well, I get that. Couldn't agree more. It is all about Jesus. Nevertheless, church, we have to come to grips with the very fact that the Bible talks about rewards. I think we need to pause a little bit and talk about it a little bit. Because I think we, we kind of get a little weird here when we start talking about rewards because we, we're told all the time we can't make it about us and so we want to make sure we don't make it about us, although we do all the time, right? <laughs> but we get a little weird when it comes to rewards because it's not about rewards, it's about Jesus. Couldn't be more true. But we can't deny the fact that God's word talks about God rewarding his people. It seems to be that it is his heart to do so. Besides, these rewards should not be, ought not be thought of like the rewards or awards given to us here on earth. Big difference, folks. And maybe that's where the problem is because we haven't been able to distinguish the difference between rewards there, rewards, awards here. Rewards typically here have monetary value and awards are usually an item or a prize like a trophy or a ribbon or a certificate. What do the two have in common? I'll tell you what they have in common, personal accomplishment. But the rewards received in heaven will not be of such that will point to our accomplishments. Please hear me now. Whatever you're, you're, wherever you are right now, come back right now, okay? <laughs> and I want you to hear this. The rewards that we receive in heaven will not be of such that will point to our accomplishments, but rather to all that our Redeemer has done for us and through us. Here it is, church. Our rewards will be our reminders for all eternity of His great grace. Oh, I'm glad you said amen, because that would have been a perfect place to do it. <laughs> I mean, isn't that awesome? And it kind of changes things, doesn't it? With our perception of rewards in heaven. You guys remember the 24 elders in Revelation? What do we see them doing? Taking off their crowns and laying them at the throne and then saying, worthy, worthy are you, God. I love that. What do crowns represent in our time? Who wears crowns in our time? Rulers, kings, queens. So a crown represents status. And so then the elders, by laying their crowns at the throne, are basically saying, my status means nothing. Jesus, you are everything 
Paul says, some will be saved through the flames. They'll make it into heaven. They'll be warmed when they see Jesus' face, but they'll look around and notice and say, oh no, everything I ever did on earth just vaporized before his eyes. And now I have no crown, no reward to lay at his feet. So it would be a good thing, I think. Just saying, church, I think it would be a good thing to care about the rewards given in heaven because you will want to be sure you have a crown or two, a reward or two, amen, to lay at the feet of Jesus and then join with the angels. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the last. The right foundation to the right materials, and it's all to be used for the right building. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, and for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. Noting Paul's progression, as I just said a moment ago, foundation followed by materials, all to be used for the right building. Paul introduces the image of the local church here in Corinth as a holy temple of God. In other words, the Christians together Here's another thing here I think I want to make sure you, you don't miss because we typically hear this and think of this in a different kind of singular kind of way. But the original language in the Greek is not written in singular form. It's plural. Okay? We'll talk more about that here. In other words, the Christians together constituted God's dwelling place in Corinth. Not an individual, but them together. Of course, the church together gathered is made up of individuals. We, we get that. But the point here that Paul is making, Paul is telling the Corinthians that corporately, as God's people, they establish a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. As a church body, they were to visibly represent the living God on earth. Now that is right in cahoots <laughs> with Mount Sinai, isn't it? What did God tell them and charge the people of Israel? You are my chosen people and through you I want you to make me known to the world. And God's saying the same thing here to us in New Testament times. The Greek word translated temple is not the usual word used for the whole temple here on but is rather the Greek word naos, which speaks of the holy of holies. Not the whole temple, but that special room, that special compartment known as the holy of holies, that part of the temple where the visible perception of the glory of God and the presence of God was. Because the phrase you 
which in Greek is eimi, meaning to be. We are to be his house, his building, his temple. But notice, it says you, yourselves. It is plural, not singular. It doesn't just say you, speaking to an individual. You, yourselves, speaking to the church, the whole gathering at Corinth, and us, for that matter. Don't you know that together you are the, what's Paul saying? The holy of holies. Well, that puts a little bit more emphasis on that, doesn't Don't you think? Because typically we hear that you are the temple of God. But what Paul is actually saying, no, you are the visible, you are to be. All of you together, the visible perception of the glory of our magnificent, glorious God. The holy of holies you are to be. The Life Application Bible Commentary inserts a clever, clever note here. We are accustomed to reading these phrases, you are the temple of God, you are the spirit of God, the spirit of God dwells in you, as if the grammar were singular. Perhaps a southern expression would help us to get the point. You see how I'm looking over here? In other words, it would read, all y'all <laughs> are God's holy of holies. All y'all are. Wow. Oh, Paul wanted the Corinthians to think more as a unified community and less as independent individuals. Ooh, there's a message for the church today. What do you think? <laughs> he was emphasizing the intent, really, of Jesus' prayer in John 17, that believers be unified with one another and with God, just as he and the Father were unified and together. Verses 16 and 17 warns us that if we destroy or defile God's temple, God will destroy us. Need some clarity. This doesn't mean eternal condemnation. After all, in verse 15, we have already been told that each worker will be saved even if though it is by fire, if by through flame. In this context, Paul is saying that each of us builds into the, ch the church what we build into our own lives. Did you hear that? I'm going to say it again, all right? <laughs> Each of us builds into the church because we're all in this together what we build into our own lives. What have you been building into your life lately? So we end up tearing down our own lives if we fail to build into the church the values that will last. We may look very successful to others, but Paul says the day will bring it to light. And on that day, 
there will be some building and works that were not wisely done going up in smoke. All of this points to this truth, church. We are to be God's holy temple. What does it mean to be holy? Well, when Moses realized he was in the presence of the Lord, he was told to do what? Take off his shoes. Because the ground he was on was holy ground, Exodus 3.5. Has he overlooked the city of Jericho? Joshua had an encounter with the Lord, and he too was told to take off his shoes, Joshua 5.15. Therefore, since the church is holy, because God has said so, it seems right that we take off our shoes as well. How? Glad you asked. After walking through mud on a rainy day, what do we do when we're getting ready to walk into our homes? We take off our shoes because we do not want to bring mud into the house. In the same way, when we come together as a body, we are to leave the mud of the world outside. Come on. We're to leave behind the grudges and the pride, the attitudes that are wrong, and hearts that are way too quick to judge. Another reason for figuratively removing our shoes is so that when we do come together for fellowship and worship as a community, community of faith, as one body, it helps us to enjoy our God's amazing love for us and for one another. Amen. God's desire is that rather than being <laughs> uptight and upset or even on guard when we gather our service for him, our fellowship with him and with each other causes us when we're doing this right to be relaxed, refreshed, and renewed. Anybody need any of those? <laughs> the right foundation. Verse 18. Do not destroy yourselves. If any of you think you are wise, by the standards of this age, you should become fools <laughs> so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Interesting words. In these verses, Paul adds a capstone, if you will, to the exhortation that he's been building on throughout these first few chapters. He adds nothing substantially new as he finishes out this third chapter, but summarizes what he had been urging and talking about all along. Now, it may come as a shock, and it does to some church members, actually, that you cannot manage a local church the same way you manage a local business. 
Now, this does not mean that good business principles and practices are to be ignored. It's not what we're saying, but the operation between the two, totally different. From opposite worlds, you could say, huh? <laughs> Newsflash, the wisdom of this world may seemingly work for this world, but it will never, ever work for the church. In light of the contrast between human and divine wisdom, Paul urges his readers to become foolish in the eyes of the world in order to actually become wise by God's standards. The term that we see in verse 18, the term age, is an interesting one because it refers to a world system not associated in any way, shape, or form to any of the commands or requirements of our God. Totally other than that. The world depends on what? Promotion, prestige, the influence of money, important people. The church is to depend on prayer. The power of the Spirit. How about this one? Humility. <laughs> Sacrifice. And service. The church that imitates the world may seem to succeed for a time, but it will turn to ashes in eternity. I think about the church in the book of Acts. They had none of the secrets of success. And yet the Bible says they turned the world upside down. I'll just add a little thing here. In my opinion, it would seem like that whole thing has been flipped because it would appear that today, because so many Christians are so wrapped up and concerned about the things of this world, the world has turned us upside down. Verses 19 through 20 warns that human wisdom will only trap us and lead us to pride and uselessness with quotes that come from Job. Chapter 5, verse 13, that's God kind of busting Job for his own pride. Also, Psalm 94.11 is referred to and quoted, though the church must be, folks, identified with the needs of the world, no question, no doubt, it dare not imitate the wisdom of this world. Amen? Verse 21. So then... No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. The right plan 
gets pulled off when we've got the right motive. The right motive is what? The glory of God. Amen? The members of the Corinthian church were glorifying mere humans. They were comparing various leaders with one another and dividing the church by carnal and worldly behavior and actions. Had they been seeking to glorify God and Him alone, there would have been harmony. There would have been unity and there would not have been division. Paul points out that each believer possesses all things because we're in Christ, he says, right? Each one of God's servants. Here, I want you to hear me. Each one of God's servants not only belong to God, but we belong to each other. Did you hear that? Paul is saying that we cannot allow our personal preferences to become our divisive prejudices. Can't be. Because each servant belongs to each member equally. All are yours, Paul says. The world, life, death, things present, things to come. How rich we are in Christ. If all things belong to all believers, then why should there be competition and rivalry and division? <laughs> Get your eyes off of men, Paul is admonishing. Keep your eyes on Christ and work with him in building his church so it won't turn to ashes <laughs> when the fire falls amen we're all in this together may we act like it amen we are all in this together may God help us to act like it for after all we have been given everything we could ever need. All the right stuff to get her done. Amen. Yeah. Lord, we just come before you this evening and we thank you so much for your mercy and grace. We thank you, God, that um, you don't give up on us. We thank you that you don't kick us to the curb. <laughs> you just love us. And you continue to be faithful even in our unfaithfulness. You continue to come to us even when we're out doing our own thing. You're just always there. Leading and guiding. Help us, Lord, to lay aside our wants and desires of this world. Help us, God, to get over ourselves. Help us, God, to really completely, fully realize that not only do we belong to you, may that truth set us free 
to enjoy you and one another in fellowship, in worship, and in serving you, and in building your house, your kingdom, Lord, mm -hmm. as we visibly become to the world the holy of holies to them, displaying you, your glory, your presence. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.